This summer, I spent two weeks, as some here might know, on my bicycle cycling across France. I started on the Atlantic coast at uh, La Rochelle and I and my brother, we cycled um, across to the Mediterranean coast and we came home on the aeroplane from Montpellier. And for much of the way, we followed the route of the course of the Canal du Garonne and the Canal du Midi. Uh, It's a huge, uh, epic construction, really massive. It was begun or planned, uh, apparently, according to my internet, uh, the time of uh, Louis XIV, and it allows surprisingly large vessels to avoid the need to circumnavigate the great big peninsula of of Spain and Portugal going from the west in the Atlantic to the east uh, in the Mediterranean. Over its course, it rises to a height of 620 feet, about the height of um, Beachy Head. In order to provide the water for this huge project, a correspondingly enormous water supply system was also built, which gathered the waters from the Montagne Noire over in the north to the north of Carcassonne, and it, uh, by means of huge culverts and reservoirs and canals, it delivered and continues to, live, to deliver to this day enough water to power the many uh, locks, the uh, clues, the locks which uh, take boats from one level to another. And that allows um, the passage of vessels over the elevation of the canal. Well, we cycled past the point at which the water enters the canal. Very unremarkable it looks. It's just a leafy junction uh, in the canal about half the width of the Thames here in Oxford and only the notice announcing it as the partage de l'eau désolé pour l'accent Hélène but anyway that's my best Um, only the notice announcing it uh, as such reveals its identity but for anything, a little fish or a little minnow or something entering the, the canal uh, at this point, it, what happens here it determines what's, what it's going to do. You know, if it turns right, it's going to get flushed hundreds of kilometres to the west and it's going to end up um, down by Bordeaux. And if it turns left, it, uh, the little fish is going to get sluiced all the way uh, through, the, through the many locks all the way down to the, uh, the Mediterranean at uh, the, the towns of Béziers and Nabon. So, there you go, the partage de l'eau. At first sight, not much more than a detail along the way, but very significant. And in here, in Luke chapter 17, we get a story about a healed leper returning to remember his manners and say thank you. First sight, not much more than a detail along the way, but very significant indeed. You see, by responding with thanks and praise, one man is showing the vital sign of faith. And faith, the Bible tells us, is irreplaceable. Because without it, we cannot please God. Jesus is travelling this northern area in the territory of Judea 
It's, um, it's called Galilee, and he's on this border country between Samaria, and he's on his way to Jerusalem. It's a momentous destination, and something, he's on a mission uh, which is going to transform the world. Yet nonetheless, here is the Son of God showing his power and compassion to people who are in need and in pain. Ten men with leprosy stand at a, a distance as Jesus enters the village, and they shout at him, to show them mercy. And key to understanding um, what's called leprosy in the Bible, that it's, it's seen as a form of physical and spiritual pollution which required one to be excluded from the community. What the Bible describes as leprosy may not be known, may not be what is known as leprosy today. It may have included a whole range of defiling skin diseases. But since leprosy, or what was called it, as called such in biblical times, resulted in exclusion from society, the only people you could hang out with if you were a leper was another leper. And so completely did the rules of society excise you from normal customs that we find this group of lepers associating with a Samaritan. Now, in normal circumstances, the Jews didn't have anything to do with the Samaritans. And there are plenty of examples in the Gospels which, which illustrate this. There's an incident which takes place when Jesus is travelling through Samaria itself and he stops at this village called Sychar. And he's tired and he sits down at this well. And, the, and there's a woman there and, he's, and he asks her for a drink. And this woman is amazed. She's a Samaritan woman. She is amazed that he, an obviously Jewish man, should be asking her for a drink. She says uh, to him, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman, in, in John chapter 4 verse 9, how could you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And if you wanted to insult someone in Jewish society, you called them a Samaritan. In John chapter 8, verse 48, there's this encounter where the Pharisees were seeking to undermine and dismiss the claims by made by Jesus. They say, aren't we right in saying that you are demon-possessed and are a Samaritan? If you wanted to really get under someone's skin, you called them that. So there was long-standing tensions between the Judean and the Samaritan communities, and it was based largely on disputes about descent and who did what and when and where during the time of the exile to, uh, to Babylonia, and who nicked whose territory and who moved into whose house, that sort of thing. But, being a leper, it seems, this hostility was set to one side, and you got your human contact where you could find it. But together then, these ten individuals, irrespective of their nationality, they appeal to Jesus for mercy. In the Old Testament, you know, there, 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 there was a whole set of rules about that. They were, Jesus responds and he, he sends them off to see the priests. That's what the rules said. And the priests were trained to recognise leprosy or what was seen to be defiling skin diseases. So he was sent off to the priests and the priests carefully examined the head and if the sores proved to be leprous, the priests declared the person unclean. Then they had to live outside the camp and if anybody else approached them they had to ring a bell and call out unclean, unclean. And if someone got better from this 
there was another ceremonial to be undertaken. This too involved the, uh, demanded the involvement of the priest, and it's, it's quite long and involved. But I'm going to read it just so you can see how um, seriously the Old Testament took this business about leprosy and cleansing and so forth. In, in Leviticus 14, the Lord said to Moses, These are the regulations for any diseased person at the time of their ceremonial cleansing when they are brought to the priest. The priest is to go outside the camp and examine them. If they've been healed of their defiling skin disease, the priest shall order that that two live birds and some cedar wood and scarlet yarn and hyssop be brought for the person to be cleansed. Then the priest shall order that one of the birds be killed over fresh water in a clay pot. He is then to take the live bird and dip it together with the cedar wood, the scarlet yarn and the hyssop into the blood of the bird that was killed over the fresh water. Seven times shall he sprinkle the one to be cleansed of the defiling disease and then pronounce them clean. After that he is to relieve the live bird into the open fields. The person must cleanse, must wash their clothes, shave off all their hair and bathe with water, then they will be ceremonially clean. After that, they may come into the camp, but they must stay outside their tent for seven days. On the seventh day, they must shave off all their hair, uh, they must shave their head, their beard, their eyebrows and the rest of their hair. They must wash their clothes and bathe themselves with water, and they will be clean. Certainly an involved process. And Jesus simply instructs the lepers to go and get this process underway. They follow his instructions and they are clean. They are cleansed. And Jesus is dealing with the exclusion caused by biblical leprosy. And the Bible makes it very clear that the separation, the distance, the exclusion from a pure God which marks people because of their sin, can't be dealt with by the death of sacrificed animals, but by Jesus. The Apostle Paul, when he's writing to Christians in Ephesus, chapter 2, 13, he says this, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So, Jesus deals with exclusion. But a response is required. And it's a response, as we were thinking earlier, with Peter, a response of thanks and praise. Shockingly, from nine of the cleansed lepers, the response is not forthcoming. Benjamin Franklin, the United States politician, said this, Most people return small favours, acknowledge medium ones, and repay greater ones with ingratitude. Jesus has been spending, in these, in these uh, chapters running up to 17, an awful lot of time describing the appearance of unbelief. It's horrible and its effects are horrible and shocking themes have continued to emerge from our visits to these chapters in Luke. For example, it is shocking that those in positions of supposed spiritual leadership should wish to prevent the most needy from benefiting from contact with Jesus. 
we find the Pharisees expressing disapproval that this teacher, Jesus, should be spending time and attention engaging with them, engaging with, as they saw them, scumbag tax collectors and other human detritus. The very people in need and aware of their need. The rich man in the parable we looked at a couple of weeks ago, having come to an utterly bad end, still thinks he can have the former beggar Lazarus at his beck and call, running down to Hades with a glass of cooling water, or scampering back to the land of the living to warn his brothers and tip them that wink that actually there is a God and a judgment etc. and tell them to mend their ways and shape up and avoid damnation. What shocking arrogance. Utterly undented. Even by the fact that God has sent him to hell. And also shocking was the breathtaking insolence of the younger son in the parable of the prodigal and it's matched by the jaw-dropping churlishness of nine out of ten of the cleansed lepers in today's verses. There was a, um, a poet, English poet, in the 18th and 19th century, of whom I'd never heard, and his name was Walter Savage Landor, and he once wrote, I don't know what else he wrote, but he wrote this, it was very, I thought it was quite good. He said, we often fancy that we suffer from ingratitude, while in reality we suffer from self-love. Each of the nine ungrateful recipients of God's uh, mercy clearly loved himself too much to allow him to uh, accord the thanks and the praise that were due to God. Presumably, these nine unthankful cleansed lepers couldn't believe their luck once they found out they were cleansed. And they got the paperwork sorted out at the priest's office and dashed back into the society from which they'd been excluded. Their self-love made it unimportant to them to give thanks and praise to God. And I'm afraid that actually, that, that, that poor trait of unbelief is very relevant with unbelieving people today. And what we're getting is a glimpse of our human nature. As it relates to God, it's not a pretty picture. And unsurprisingly, our better sides recoil. So, ingratitude, therefore, is a normal setting for human beings without faith. When we were looking at the parable of the dishonest uh, manager with Charlie, Charlie posed the question, what does a believer actually look like? What characteristics will they um, display? When it comes to human beings, it seems to me, what we can clearly see is what the absence of faith looks like, and against the blackness of the night sky of unbelief, this little twinkling star of faith shines so brightly. It's as if Jesus, by depicting the preposterousness of unbelief, shows how reasonable it is to show faith. And the response is really simple. It's thanks and praise to God. So we know what unbelief looks like. And it doesn't just make God sad, it makes God angry. Again, Paul to the Romans, in first chapter 21, points this out in typically forthright style. The wrath of God is being revealed, and he goes on, 
He says, people without, are without excuse. For although they knew God, these lepers knew Jesus enough to shout and know that, you know, that he was somebody powerful. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. So we know what a believer will show. They will show thanks and praise to God. And it is the response to a God who searches for the lost, who runs to welcome, who tells us there is a choice to be made and that no one can serve two masters. And this week we can see that he gives healing, who then asks almost plaintively, what about those other people? Why won't they say thank you? You see, um, this year, after a very hot, dry spring, the summertime has been unseasonably wet in the Midi, and the water in the canal has stayed at a good level. In hot years, though, the demands of irrigation on the canal mean that uh, navigation is limited to conserve water. They reduce the number of times that they'll open and close the, the locks. And I found myself wondering as I cycled along, what would become of the Canal du Midi if the Partage de l'eau no longer supplied water into the canal? Well, it would fail. It would become a stagnant ditch. It would dry out still further. Uh, just become an overgrown trench, it would become unrecognisable from what it is at the moment and completely unable to function. A true believer knows how completely they rely on God for everything. A true believer can see how that God has saved him from a leprosy, a leper-like existence of exclusion from God. And when, at whatever point it is in our lives that this happens, when we can see the extent of God's generosity to us, if we have faith, there is a response of immense gratitude and an overwhelming awe, and it leads to worship. Unlikely people respond. The reason I asked Jax to read a bit about Saul's conversion was particularly for this reason. We find that one man in this group of lepers is unique and he shows a response of thanks and praise. He's an unlikely person in the eyes of Judean observers to be showing thanks and praise. After all, he's a Samaritan and we know what the Judeans think about the Samaritans. The punchline of the story is that only the Samaritan praise God. Are we ready to acknowledge the response of thanks and praise from unlikely individuals? Uh, a long time ago, when I was a young chap, I went to a Christian conference in the fair land of Wales. And uh, in the previous 100 years, God had poured out Revival on a large area of Wales. And this piece of history had left its mark on the collective consciousness of the group of Christians I was with. The preacher, a Scotsman as it turned out, was 
challenging the gathering as to their attitude. How would you react, he asked, if you heard that God had poured out his spirit in fresh revival? He paused. Then you heard it was happening in England. Edgy laughter. What have those English ever done to deserve such blessing? More. Edgy laughter. The fact is God does bless undeserving English people. George Bernard Shaw once wryly and famously remarked, it is impossible for an Englishman to open his mouth without making some other Englishman hate or despise him. Christians, I'll get, I'll get to Jack's reading in a minute, but I, I did want to say something about this. Christians living at the time of the conversion of, of Saul of Tarsus found it very hard to see that change coming. Disciple Ananias told by God to visit this blinded and newly converted Saul, and he responds, as, as, we, read, as we heard, Acts 9, I've heard, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. Surprising people do respond, and we need to be ready to embrace unlikely responders. And us today. Are we thanking and praising people, quite apart from how our subjective selves are feeling? Can we pray, for example, the Lord's Prayer, and acknowledge a holy God, even whose dwelling place is sacred, whose gracious kingdom must grow, and magnificently it can include us. We can be included. A humble gratitude for the lavish physical gifts he gives us. Repenting from past sins while seeking deliverance from evil. And finally, can we ascribe to him glory unendingly? Well, one day we really will. But only if we make a start now.